Well, good morning, Mariana, part of the teaching team. Our senior pastors, Randy and Clara Moranville, are traveling today, but the rest of the Board of Trustees is here, which having all of us on the same Sunday is kind of an unusual thing, it seems. So, <laughs> so if you are new or if you need to speak to someone, we have tons of people in leadership and will be available after the service. I want to make sure that if you've got a program of iNews and all that, you also got a little flyer with some scriptures on it. And if you didn't, raise your hand. And David's going to make sure that you do. This is in lieu of a PowerPoint. And then also, I want everybody to have a napkin. I was going to get you St. Patrick's Day napkins, but I didn't get to the store in time. So it's just a regular napkin. You may or may not need it. Let me set up while you're getting your stuff. Should they take the napkins to Grady's? Well, you know, you can always put a napkin to good use. You know, if you spill your Coke or something, you have something to wipe it up with. And I want to start by giving you a chance to read some of these scriptures, and then I want to get your reaction. And the part I want you to read is the side that says, love your enemies, Matthew. If you have time to read the other side, that's great. But for now, let's take a minute to read through these verses from Matthew. This is from the message version, but I'll be talking about some others as well. I'll just give you a minute to do that, and then we're going to do a little interaction. Yay. I can tell who the introverts are in the room because they all look down when we say interaction. Don't worry, you won't be embarrassed. It's not what the napkins are for. You want to just look up when you're done? I don't give me a... Huh? No, we're not going to read it out loud. I want you to read it to yourselves, changing things up just a little bit. And get in touch with how you feel when you read it. Huh? Anybody else need one? No?
So what's your gut reaction to that? Just one or two words. I'll tell you mine if you tell me yours. I fall short. Does it seem impossible? Yeah. What enemies? I think when I was first exposed to these passages, and I, I, you need to know that I was an English major before I was a journalism major, before I was a public relations major, and that was just my undergraduate years. Yeah. So as an English major, I thought, hyperbole. This is Jesus doing one of these things where he exaggerates something to make a point. Like just a few verses before, he had said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And everybody knew he didn't mean literally chop off your arm. For one thing, that would go against all sorts of Jewish laws and stuff. But the point was, do whatever it takes to keep yourself from doing the things that separate you from God. Right? So if I have a problem with certain TV shows, and that's getting in the way of my relationship with God, I need to cancel the cable subscription, get rid of the TV, do whatever it takes, right? That, that's hyperbole. Cut off your arm if you need to. And I thought, well, that's what this means. You know, be nice to people. Even if it's your worst enemy or somebody who's been really nasty to you, you know, just be nice to them. He doesn't really mean this, love your enemy. That's impossible. So that was my first reaction. But as we start, I want, I want to point out that today's message, along with most of what you hear here on Sunday mornings, is directed to people who consider themselves part of the kingdom of God. And so we see our faith not as Christianity, a belief system centered on something that happened a couple thousand years ago, although that's involved, but we see it as a day-to-day experience with God. Um, And God is someone who exists in community. You've heard of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. When we say God, that's who we mean. And he's both the creative force behind the universe and what sustains it. He's more than I can describe to you in words or that any of us, I think, could understand as long as we're in this human body where we're limited by our senses and our language and our brain. And we talk about being citizens of the kingdom or living in the kingdom, not just as an experience of God, but actually experiencing the presence of God, experiencing partnership with him, experiences his comfort and his empowering And for the past few weeks, we've been talking about that experience um, surrounding the messages in a book called The Good and Beautiful Life. This is kind of a sequel to a book we read last year as a congregation, The Good and Beautiful God. And we're learning about that life in the kingdom and the relationship with that God. And for those of you who don't consider yourselves maybe to be part of that kingdom, that mindset, these messages can still be useful 
kind of like a tour. This is what life is like if you decide you want to have this kind of life instead of an ordinary life. So I think it's still valuable that way. For those of you who are part of the kingdom, but maybe you're brand new to our church or you're visiting or you're still getting to know us, I wanted to share with you some excerpts from a poem I came across. Because as I was reading this poem, I was thinking, wow, this is like looking at pictures of the people in our church, just to help you get to know us. And it wasn't written about church people. It wasn't written about us. It was written for the 2010 Vancouver Winter Olympics. And it was about the people of Canada. But I want to read just a few parts of it to you so you can get to know us better if you're new around here. It's titled, We Are More by Shane Poison. And part of it says, we are an idea in the process of being realized. We are young. We are cultures strung together, then woven into a tapestry. And the design is what makes us more than the sum total of our history. We are an experiment going right for a change, because we believe in generations beyond our own, knowing now that so many of us have grown past what used to be. Thank God. We can stand here today filled with all the hope people have when they say things like, someday. We are the lost and found for all those who might find themselves at a loss. We are not the see-through gloss or glamour of those who clamor for the failings of others. We are fathers, brothers, sisters, and mothers, uncles and nephews, aunts and nieces. We are cousins. We are found missing puzzle pieces. We are families with room at the table for newcomers. We are the reasons people have for wanting to stay. Whenever we ask people why they come back, they say it's for the people, for the relationships. Because we are more than what we say or do, we live to get past what we go through and learn who we are. We are students. We don't have all the answers, but we try, and the effort is what makes us more. We don't all know what it is in life we're looking for, so keep exploring. Go far and wide. Go deep. We are voices shouting, keep exploring. We are more. We are the surprise the world has in store for you. I would say that God has in store for you. It's true, but don't let your luggage define your travels. Each life unravels differently, and experiences are what make up the colors of our tapestry. And if you know something about the different experiences and the different backgrounds of people in this church, you can see why this reminded me of us. And, you know, we each show up with our own baggage. That's the stuff we've been through. But we always also come with luggage. I found that word interesting in the poem. Luggage means a trip you're going on, right? It defines your expectations. If I'm planning a trip up north, I'm going to pack winter clothes. If I'm going for a long time, I might take more luggage or less luggage, right? So as we go through life, some of us have little luggage, and it's very well fortified to protect whatever it is we have inside because we're afraid it might get dropped or trampled on, and it's delicate, and, and we can't get any more, and, so, and we're not going to get any more. Maybe we don't, don't deserve to get any more, so we have our little bag, and... This, this is how we go through life. And then sometimes we learn that there's a great big God that wants to give us a lot of 
great big stuff and a lot of blessings. And so we start packing something a little bigger because we realize that it's not just about me and what I need. God's going to give me stuff that I can pull out and give to you as you need it. And it's not a world of very limited supply. He's going to keep on putting stuff in here. I can keep giving it out, and he's going to keep filling it up. So I'm going to have big expectations. But that kind of depends on what we think we deserve. If I don't think I deserve that kind of blessing from God or for God to use me, excuse me, then I won't, I won't have those expectations. I won't be prepared for that. And this brings me to two pivotal values of the ancient world, the world that Jesus was talking to. And those values are honor and shame, the worth one had in the eyes of, of his neighbor. And those were really big back then. They're still big today. Some cultures make more of a big deal of it than others. But don't we still define ourselves a lot by what people think of us? And honor and shame comes from whatever standards a community sets. And so people who do these things or are these things, if you're born into these families, you get honored. Other people don't. So what are people honored for in the regular world? What kind of things? Achievements? What kind of achievements? Graduation. Who gets paid the most in this country? Entertainers? Athletes? Football players? CEOs? If they can make a lot of money for the shareholders of a company, then they're going to get paid big bucks. Who gets prizes? Or maybe headlines? Political leaders? And I mean good, positive headlines, because we're talking about honor right now. Yeah, we're talking about honor. So sometimes people who give away a lot of money or who make a lot of money, right? How about people who are good looking, whatever that means? People who have nice voices. Well, see, in the kingdom, it's different. In the kingdom... God's blessing rests on the merciful. He has a whole different kind of currency. Another way to say this is that God honors those who are generous with mercy. And so just like in this world, even philanthropists who give away a lot of money are honored. Well, the currency of the kingdom doesn't come in dollar bills or hundred dollar bills or million dollar checks. It comes in grace and mercy and love. And those who give the most of it away are the ones who receive this honor. It's a very different way of thinking. Okay, so what are people shamed for in the regular world? What are people either called names or maybe ignored, pushed aside? What kind of things? Or maybe they go to jail? Hello? The hookers? What was the other one? Liberals? It depends. Sometimes conservatives, sometimes liberals. People who don't agree with our little standard, right? 
people that are different, people that commit crimes, right? What about people that have certain diseases and we don't want to catch them? And see, in the kingdom it doesn't work that way because shame isn't a part of the vocabulary. Part of the biblical view of reality is that people change. So even if I did something awful last year, or I come from a terrible family, or whatever, I can still change. We're told in Romans 8.1 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yes, this does mean that as a person in the kingdom, I don't carry around a bunch of shame over what's happened in the past. Either the things I did or the things that were done to me. But it also means I don't go around throwing shame around at those people who don't meet my standards. Shame isn't part of the kingdom. It's not part of the currency. It's like somebody from another country coming to the States, wanting to buy a car, and saying, here's my bag of pebbles. In my country, these pebbles are worth a lot. Not going to work in the U.S., right? Same thing with shame in the kingdom. And yes, there is justice in the kingdom. I'm not saying there's not. But we leave it up to God to judge that, to settle those accounts. And so we've come to the part of the book, The Good and Beautiful Life, that's teaching from what's come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. And the chapter I was assigned is called Bless Those Who Curse You. And I want to read you just a little bit about what the author says about this choice of paradigms or narratives, the world and the kingdom, the way things work. He says, every time we retaliate, we are operating by the narratives of the kingdom of this world. Each time we curse our enemies, we are affirming our faith in the narratives of the life without God. When we refuse to freely give, we demonstrate our allegiance to the world's narratives of scarcity and fear. When we hate our enemies, we betray the God who loves his enemies. Conversely, when we pray for and bless those who curse us, we align ourselves with God and his kingdom. We are doing what God and what Jesus did. And he talks about being more than enough people. To cross the bridge from selfishness to generosity, we need even more than new narratives. We will need the power of the indwelling Christ. In two beautiful passages, Miroslav Wolf explains how Christians are more than enough people. If we are indwelled by Christ who became poor, that we can become rich, we will be rich. No matter how little we have, we will be more than enough people. And yet, without being more than enough people, our wanting will always outpace are having and will end up perpetually exhausted and forever dissatisfied. We are more than enough people, not because of the size of our bank account or the number of our accomplishments, but because Christ dwells in us. Our value is immense and our world is safe, safe for us to give and to sacrifice our resources. Outside of the kingdom, we are not enough people, always searching for our identity and happiness in material things or in what others think of us. Our wanting will always outpace our having. Wolf describes the one in dealt by Christ as a rich self. He says a rich self looks towards the future with trust. Walks around with this big luggage just knowing that stuff will come in. 
It gives rather than holding things back in fear of coming out too short because it believes God's promise that God will take care of it. Finite and endangered, a rich self still gives because its life is hidden with Christ. In the infinite, unassailable, and utterly generous God, the Lord of the present, the past, and the future. The spiritually rich self is a more-than-enough person who is conscious of being indwelt by Christ. Such a person is able to cross the bridge from self-centeredness to generosity because there is no fear of coming out short. God is with us and for us and able to provide for us. And that doesn't just mean provide for us food and shelter, although that's important. It also means to provide for us when we're in emotional need, emotional distress, spiritual distress. So he says God is with us, so the need to retaliate is diminished. I can let God take care of it. God has an endless supply of resources, so I don't need to hang on to my possessions. God is looking out for our needs so I can take the time to go the extra mile. That's all coming from the Sermon on the Mount. God is the real owner of all we have, so there's no need to hoard and protect it. So we talk about kingdom identity. I am the one in who Christ dwells. And kingdom awareness. This kingdom I live in is a strong and secure kingdom. And understanding those things are the keys for us to do what God's calling us to do, to live radically generous, extraordinary lives. Speaking to this idea of kingdom identity, Professor Joanne Brandt writes that the covenantal relationships of the two Testaments, there's the Old Testament and the New Testament, and they each described a contract, if you will, with God. Vows, like the vows people take when they get married. The covenantal relationships of the two testaments require that honor and shame be categories determined in reference to the relationship with God rather than reference to the opinion of other people. It's amazing how much the opinion of other people affects us. Even when we hear about God's opinion of us, still. And it's amazing how much our relationships and our experiences with other people limit us in understanding God. Because, see, God isn't something you just know about. It's information. It's not like, and I'm borrowing this from Jonathan Edwards, it's not like reading that honey is sweet. And if I've never tasted honey and you tell me it's sweet, okay, I I have an idea. How different is that from actually tasting honey? Right? Well, to taste God, we receive his goodness from other people. And we express his goodness. We, we experience it that way, too. And to the extent that we haven't had that, it's really hard to get to know this good and beautiful God. And so it's not just about information. It's about transformation. Because in the kingdom, we're invited to partner with God. You know, God does everything as a partnership. That trinity. And it's like, imagine three people dancing in a circle here. And then they start pulling in people from the audience. And now you have eight, ten, twenty people dancing together. That's what the kingdom is like. When I see David Garza dancing 
around during worship. I know he's dancing with God. I know he's not the only one. I know there's angels. That's the kingdom. Let me define some terms, because if we're being told, bless those who curse us, what does that mean? What's cursing? From the King James, that Matthew, those scriptures in Matthew that I gave you in the message, the King James, uh, Matthew 5.43 says, You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy enemy and hate thine enemy. Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Curse means literally to curse, to doom, to bring evil upon. It comes from a word that means denouncing and detesting, and a word that imprecation. It's what people say um, when you offend them in some way. You back up into their car and they say, you jerk! or other colorful language that I'll let you fill in the blank. That's a curse. Think of people standing outside a courtroom, and as the accused is being brought in, they're yelling, you murderer, you rapist, right? That's the curse. I'm calling you something, and I'm also, with that identification, identifying that there's bad things that should happen to you. You don't have to raise your hands because I think you probably all would. Anybody ever been called a nasty name or accused of something you're not? You know, Jesus taught with parables, stories, to illustrate a point. So he might tell you about a shepherd that had a hundred sheep and one of them got lost and he loved that sheep so much he left the other 99, right? Remember those stories, those of you who are familiar with them? I want to do a... 21st century version of that by showing you a couple of videos and letting the people tell the story themselves. And the first video is the guy that wrote that poem for the Canadian, the Olympics in Vancouver, except this time he's talking about his own life and how he was cursed and how that affected him and how there's a different way to respond to those experiences. So many of you. When I was a kid, I hid my heart under the bed because my mother said, if you're not careful, someday someone's going to break it. Take it from me, under the bed is not a good hiding spot. I know because I've been shot down so many times, I get altitude sickness just from standing up for myself. But that's what we were told. Stand up for yourself. That's hard to do if you don't know who you are. We were expected to define ourselves at such an early age. And if we didn't do it, others did it for us. Geek, fatty, slut, fag. And at the same time we were being told what we were, we were being asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? I always thought that was an unfair question. It presupposes that we can't be what we already are. We were kids. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a man. 
I wanted a registered retirement savings plan that would keep me in candy long enough to make old age sweet. When I was a kid, I wanted to shave. Now, not so much. When I was eight, I wanted to be a marine biologist. When I was nine, I saw the movie Jaws and thought to myself, no thank you. When I was ten, I was told that my parents left because they didn't want me. When I was eleven, I wanted to be left alone. When I was twelve, I wanted to die. When I was thirteen, I wanted to kill a kid. When I was fourteen, I was asked to seriously consider a career path. I said, I'd like to be a writer. And they said, choose something realistic. So I said, professional wrestler. And they said, don't be stupid. See, they asked me what I wanted to be, then told me what not to be. And I wasn't the only one. We were being told that we somehow must become what we are not, sacrificing what we are to inherit the masquerade of what we will be. I was being told to accept the identity that others will give me. And I wonder what made my dreams so easy to dismiss. Granted, my dreams are shy because they're Canadian. <laughs> my dreams are self-conscious and overly apologetic. They're standing alone at the high school dance and they've never been kissed. See, my dreams got called names too. Silly, foolish, impossible. But I kept dreaming. I was going to be a wrestler. I had it all figured out. I was going to be the garbage man. My finishing move was going to be the trash compactor. My saying was going to be, I'm taking out the trash. And then this guy, Duke the Dumpster Drossy, stole my entire shtick. I was crushed, as if by a trash compactor. I thought to myself, what now? Where do I turn? Poetry. Like a boomerang, the thing I loved came back to me. One of the first lines of poetry I can remember writing was in response to a world that demanded I hate myself. From age 15 to 18, I hated myself for becoming the thing that I loathed, a bully. When I was 19, I wrote, I will love myself despite the ease with which I lean toward the opposite. Standing up for yourself doesn't have to mean embracing violence. When I was a kid, I traded in homework assignments for friendship, then gave each friend a late slip for never showing up on time, and in most cases, not at all. I gave myself a hall pass to get through each broken promise. And I remember this plan born out of frustration from a kid who kept calling me Yogi, then pointed to my tummy and said, too many picnic baskets. Turns out it's not that hard to trick someone. And one day before class, I said, yeah, you can copy my homework. And I gave him all the wrong answers that I'd written down the night before. He got his paper back expecting a near-perfect score and couldn't believe it when he looked across the room at me and held up a zero. I knew I didn't have to hold up my paper of 28 out of 30, but my satisfaction was complete when he looked at me puzzled and I thought to myself, smarter than the average bear. <laughs> this is who I am. This is how I stand up for myself. When I was a kid, I used to think that pork chops and karate chops were the same thing. I thought they were both pork chops. And because my grandmother thought it was cute and because they were my favorite, she let me keep doing it. Not really a big deal.
One day, before I realized fat kids are not designed to climb trees, I fell out of a tree and bruised the right side of my body. I didn't want to tell my grandmother about it because I was scared I'd get in trouble for playing somewhere I shouldn't have been. A few days later, the gym teacher noticed the bruise and I got sent to the principal's office. From there, I was sent to another small room with a really nice lady who asked me all kinds of questions about my life at home. I saw no reason to lie. As far as I was concerned, life was pretty good. I told her whenever I'm sad, my grandmother gives me karate chops. This led to a full-scale investigation, and I was removed from the house for three days until they finally decided to ask how I got the bruises. News of this silly little story quickly spread through the school, and I earned my first nickname, Porkchop. To this day, I hate pork chops. I'm not the only kid who grew up this way, surrounded by people who used to say that rhyme about sticks and stones, as if broken bones hurt more than the names we got called, and we got called them all. So we grew up believing no one would ever fall in love with us, that we'd be lonely forever, that we'd never meet someone to make us feel like the sun was something they built for us in their tool shed. So broken heartstrings bled the blues and we tried to empty ourselves so we'd feel nothing. Don't tell me that hurts less than a broken bone. That an ingrown life is something surgeons can cut away, that there's no way for it to metastasize, it does. She was eight years old. Our first day of grade three when she got called ugly. We both got moved to the back of class so we'd stop getting bombarded by spitballs. But the school halls were a battleground. We found ourselves outnumbered day after wretched day. We used to stay inside for recess because outside was worse. Outside, we'd have to rehearse running away or learn to stay still like statues and give me no clues that we were there in grade five. They taped a sign to the front of her desk that read, Beware of Dog. To this day, despite a loving husband, she doesn't think she's beautiful because of a birthmark that takes up a little less than half her face. Kids used to say she looks like a wrong answer that someone tried to erase but couldn't quite get the job done. And they'll never understand that she's raising two kids whose definition of beauty begins with the word mom. Because they see your heart before they see your skin. Because they've never always been amazing. He was a broken branch grafted onto a different family tree. Adopted. Not because his parents opted for a different destiny. He was three when he became a mixed drink of one part left alone and two parts tragedy. Started therapy in eighth grade had a personality made up of tests and pills, lived like the uphills were mountains and the downhills were cliffs, four-fifths suicidal, a tidal wave of antidepressants and an adolescent of being called pauper. One part because of the pills, 99 parts because of the cruelty. He tried to kill himself in grade 10 when a kid who could still go home to mom and dad had the audacity to tell him, get over it as if depression is something that could be remedied by any of the contents found in a first aid kit. To this day, he is a stick of TNT lit from both ends, could describe to in detail the way the sky bends in the moments before it's about to fall. And despite an army of friends who all call him an inspiration, he remains a conversation piece between people who can't understand. Sometimes being drug-free has less to do with addiction and more to do with sanity. We weren't the only kids who grew up this way. To this day, kids are still being called names. The classics were, hey stupid, hey spaz, 
Seems like every school has an arsenal of names getting updated every year. And if a kid breaks into school and no one around chooses to hear it, they make a sound. Uh, they're just background noise from a soundtrack stuck on repeat when people say things like, kids can be cruel. Every school was a big top circus tent. And the pecking order went from acrobats to lion tamers, from clowns to carnies, all of these miles ahead of who we were. We were freaks. Lobster claw boys and bearded ladies. Oddities, juggling depression and loneliness, playing solitaire, spin the bottle, trying to kiss the wounded parts of ourselves and heal. But at night, while the others slept, we kept walking the tightrope. It was practice. And yes, some of us fell. But I want to tell them that all of this is just debris left over when we finally decide to smash all the things we thought we used to be. And if you can't see anything beautiful about yourself, get a better mirror, look a little closer, stare a little longer, because there's something inside you that made you keep trying despite everyone who told you to quit. You built a cast around your broken heart and signed it yourself. You signed it. They were wrong. Because maybe you didn't belong to a group or a clique. Maybe they decided to pick you last for basketball or everything. Maybe you used to bring bruises and broken teeth to show and tell but never told. Because how can you hold your ground if everyone around you wants to bury you beneath it? You have to believe that they were wrong. They have to be wrong. Why else would we still be here? We grew up learning to cheer on the underdog because we see ourselves in them. We stem from a root planted in the belief that we are not what we were called. We are not abandoned cars stalled out and sitting empty on some highway. And if in some way we are, don't worry, we only got out to walk and get gas. We are graduating members from the class of we made it. Not the faded echoes of voices crying out, names will never hurt me. Of course, they did. But our lives will only ever always continue to be a balancing act that has less to do with pain and more to do with beauty. What does it take for a kid who was made fun of for the way he looks and for his dreams to stand in front of that many people and bear his soul. And I'm glad he did. I think that may have brought some healing to some people. And it's what he said at the end is an absolute kingdom principle that life is more about beauty and less about the pain we go through. It's just like childbirth is so much about so much more than the pain of a small period of time compared to partnering with God to bring life into the world, a unique, precious, important life. And that's what your life and my life are about in the kingdom. Less about the pain we suffer and more about what we do with it in partnership with God. I don't have time to go through verse by verse 
the ideas presented in this um, part of the Sermon of the Mount where we're told instead of hitting people back, find a way to turn what happened into love. A guy named Ed Rowell says, God gave us the Bible that we might be transformed, not informed. This includes transformed thinking, transformed feeling, and a transformed understanding of the relationship we can have with God. There is so much more to be gained than intellectual understanding. The law says you can insist on your rights and on repayment. But in the kingdom, God's blessing rests on the merciful. In relationships with others, the kingdom citizen is called on to be like the Father in heaven and love even enemies. Does this deny justice? Not at all. It recognizes the fact that in the kingdom, God is the judge. Someone once said that Jesus' teaching is more like a compass. It gives you direction, not directions, like a recipe. And in past lessons, we've talked about how the invitation to a good and beautiful life is not a set of instructions. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to living life instead of saying, I want things my way, to agreeing to have things God's way, the kingdom way. And Clara introduced us to a new narrative of looking at people and saying, this person is made in God's image, and God doesn't want to spend eternity away from them. And neither do I. And how can I help make that happen? And so all of the commandments lead to love. Not to rules and regulations. And so what's the meaning of bless? You've seen curse. Blessing is to praise someone, to give them credit. To invoke blessings, maybe when I pray for your health that you'll be healed instead of that you'll be punished. When we're talking about God blessing someone, he causes them to prosper, to be happy. And so love of enemies entails blessing, even those who have hurt us, even those who have stolen from us. Not giving in to the natural reaction, which is, I want to slap them back. I want them to recognize what they did wrong. I want them to know how wrong they were. I want them to be punished. I want everybody to know how bad they are. Not that. But finding a way to make something beautiful out of it. So I want to show video two, which is another parable, parable, if you will, told from the point of view of an artist who wrote a song based on a letter he received from a fan. And he had a chance to meet her. You'll see a little bit of that at the beginning. Let's see if we can get it all. This is Matthew West. We're going to let her tell the story. She won't know you're here. Are you comfortable with hiding? I'm in another room waiting to go in there and surprise Renee. I can see her on a video screen. She has no idea I'm in the room right next. So you never could make the connection never with him could. personally? Never could. Never seen him? No. Turn around. <laughs> Where are you? 
I will never forget that day, the day that I met Renee, the woman whose story inspired my song, Forgiveness. And it was a story that wouldn't let me go. I remember I kept her story printed out in my guitar case for two years before I was finally able to sit down and finish that song, Forgiveness. Renee's story was about how she lost her daughter. Her daughter was killed by a drunk driver. That drunk driver was a 24-year-old kid named Eric. Eric was sentenced to 22 years in prison for the crime he committed. I'm really sorry to the families for what I've done. I would give my life. I would honestly give my life if I could to bring them back to you. After Renee lost her daughter, she said she found herself in the darkest place she'd ever been. This guy Eric was behind bars, but she said she felt like the prisoner. Why? Because she had all this bitterness and hatred built up towards that young man who stole the life of her daughter. Slowly but surely, God began to work, and he brought Renee out of that dark place. I knew that was my moment, because he was sitting right there, that I had to, to look him in the eyes, and I had to say, I forgive you. At that moment, it was like the healing began. Today, a mother who lost her daughter eight years ago to a drunk driver and the man behind the wheel of that vehicle joined together to speak to local students. When they give me a hug and, and they share their stories with me, it just, it just lets me know that they can relate to me and that they understand that you don't have to be a bad person, you just have to make a bad choice. Now here's where the story comes full circle. We went on tour this fall with the Into the Light tour. We played forgiveness every night, and Renee was a special guest at many of the shows. And she shared her story with the audience in person. We did four shows in Florida, the state where Eric is currently in prison. And I was blown away when the Department of Corrections agreed to allow Eric to attend all four of those concerts. Tell you what, if you ever wondered what forgiveness looks like, <laughs> what redemption looks like, what a miracle looks like, what healing looks like, what victory looks like, what freedom looks like. I can think of no better picture than what you're seeing on this stage. Renee and 11 of her family members each took turns standing before a judge and speaking on Eric's behalf. They asked the judge to cut his sentence in half so that he could start a second chance at life. The judge had never made this decision before, but after hearing Renee and everyone speak on his behalf, he agreed to cut Eric's sentence in half. And before the end of 2012, Eric will be a free man in more ways than one. Forgiveness, it changed it all around and it, it let an inmate out. And as the song said, it set a prisoner free. And I might only be free for tonight and I might have to go back to a prison, but I've been one of the most free prisoners in the world. I hope this song, Forgiveness, and the powerful story that inspired it has challenged you, maybe even forced you to ask yourself some, some questions. And when you think about it, there's some pretty life-defining questions, and they all revolve around that one word, forgiveness. Have I understood that I'm broken, I'm flawed, I'm imperfect, that I'm a prisoner, and that I need to embrace the forgiveness God offers to me? Do I really get it? Have I let it wash over me that God sent His only Son to die on a cross for me so that I don't have to wear the weight of all my sin and all my shame? 
See, we all have that opportunity to experience the freedom that Eric has, to experience the joy and the victory and the healing that Renee has. We can be prisoners set free, and all we have to do is say, yes, God, I need you. I need your forgiveness in my life, and I accept it right here and right now. I pray that you won't let another second go by in your life without discovering the freedom that's found in the power of one word, forgiveness. You know, I've needed forgiveness in my life, but the amount of forgiveness I've needed for what I've done is a lot smaller than the amount of forgiveness I've needed for what others have done to me. And I've needed to ask God for that because that's not something I could manufacture on my own. And the mom's story seems extraordinary, and it is, but it's not unique. This is not the only time in world history that something like this has happened, not even the only time in modern history. Because this is what God does. He creates opportunities. I find it fascinating that this particular message came on St. Patrick's Day. Don't know how much you know about St. Patrick's Day? I always thought he was Irish. He wasn't. He was actually born in Britain when it was under Roman control. He was kidnapped by Irishmen when he was 16 and imprisoned. So, can't speak for his feelings towards Irish people, but I imagine that for a while, Lord knows what they did to him or made him do, they probably weren't his favorite people. And then he had a dream where God spoke to him and told him to escape. And That may sound kind of weird unless you've read the Bible where there's lots of dreams where God speaks to people. I think sometimes it's because it's the only time we shut up long enough to listen. And so he escaped and became a priest. And eventually he felt God calling him to go back to the people that had kidnapped him, imprisoned him, hurt him, to preach the gospel to them, to give them a chance to be part of the kingdom, to love them. And he did that for over 30 years. There's a book called Truth is Stranger Than It Used to Be. And talking about how as God's redeemed people were called to be more than just somebody who lets life happen to them. He says we're called into active service as ambassadors of an alternative kingdom. Called to embody and image God's own compassionate use of power to empower others. Instead of passively mirroring the oppressive formations of the culture around us, we have the high calling of mirroring God's love in and to the culture in which we live. But a mirror, though a traditional symbol for the image of God, is too flat and too passive to capture the full-orbed, embodied character of the human calling to be God's royal priestly representatives in creation and in history. A more adequate symbol might be the prism. You've seen prisms? 
Sometimes people hang them on their rearview mirrors, and it drives me nuts because they're very hard to ignore. They shine light all around. Humanity created in God's image, and the church as the renewed image of God is empowered to be God's multifaceted prism in the world, reflecting and refracting God's brilliant light into a rainbow of cultural activity and historical action that scintillates with the glory of the Spirit and manifests Christ's reign. That's what I see that mother doing and the rest of the family and the young man joining her to talk to kids about their experience. As God's gifted and called image bearers on earth, the church is empowered to function as the body of Christ, continuing his mission of manifesting God's presence and scattering God's dazzling light abroad to a world and to people clamped in the jaws of a dragon. To me, that dragon is hopelessness and shame. And so I want to do that now. I I want to have a little time for us to exercise, practice this. I'm going to play the song that they were talking about. We won't play it all the way to the end because we're running short on time. But I want you to ask God to bring to mind someone who has cursed you, hurt you in some way, and then bless them. Pray for their good. It may not be the person who did the most awful thing to you. You may not be ready for that yet, or it may not be the time yet. But God knows who needs to be blessed today that you cross paths with somewhere in your life. So ask God, and then pray for their good. To the extent that you know their life situation, pray for their relationships, their health. If you find that you just can't do that, then you might want to work on forgiving. So ask God to help you forgive them. If you just can't do that, it's okay because these things are a process. And depending on what happened and how long you've been nursing and rehearsing, you may not just be able to push a button. But if after honestly asking God to help you forgive them, to help you bless them, you can't do it, then at least make the determination today to do something, to take a step towards becoming free of that. So you might need ministry prayer. You might need professional help. That's okay. You might just need a friend. But don't just leave here and keep it all quiet. So we're going to play the song. Ask God to bring someone to mind. Bless them if you can. If not, then forgive them. And if not, then at least decide to do something about it. And I'm going to ask you um, a question after this. But first, let's see what God does through you.
Now think about whatever it was God brought to mind and what that says about the kingdom. So, for example, if I was praying for someone's physical healing, that tells me the kingdom is a place where we're invited to be healed, to embrace healing, to deliver healing. Is there a word that describes what you were praying for someone else? I heard David praying for somebody to be set free from different things, oppressing them in their lives. So the kingdom is about freedom. Can we get a couple more? Before I call on you? Discernment. The kingdom is an invitation to live a life where you have discernment, where you see things clearly. That in itself can set you free from certain things. One more. You don't need to tell us who it's for, just the quality. Acknowledging the humanness of the person. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we have in, in the in the regular world, we, we put labels on people. Black hat, white hat, bad guy, good guy, right? And in the kingdom, we're just human. I spent about an hour, hour and a half on email and on text messages with my daughter this week, helping her work through something at work. And she was having a hard time with it. Anyway, her last text to me says, um, said something like, thanks, and I'm sorry for being such a whiny crybaby or something to that effect. And I texted back. I said, oh, you mean human? Yeah, we ordered a robot, but when we opened the box, you were so cute, we decided to keep you human factor and all. And it's that. It's recognizing this person, no matter what I've blown them up to be, is just a human being. Yes? And so there's, when we invite people into the kingdom, we also invite them into a life in which they don't have to understand everything or assume to understand everything, and they don't have to feel threatened by maybe finding out more about the person that they don't approve of in some way. Mercy. Excellent. I'm going to close my message, but then we're going to have um, a special word for the church from someone who's here for the first time. Let me close this off because I have... There was some more I wanted to read you, but someone else who understood about enemies was Martin Luther King, Jr. And in talking about the cross, he said, don't, don't see it as a meaningless drama that took place on the stages of history. Oh, no, it's a telescope through which we look out into the long vista of eternity and see the love of God breaking forth into time.
It's an eternal reminder to a power-drunk generation that love is the only way. And now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and lift us from the fatigue of despair to the buoyancy of hope, from the midnight of desperation to the daybreak of joy, to him be the power and authority forever and ever. Amen. David, can you introduce our guest? And after that, we'll have a time of ministry if we can have our um, ministry leaders come to the front once this is done. Hi, my name is David. For those of you that I don't know yet, um, I am blessed to be Marianna's husband. Uh, You know, when I first entered the auditorium uh, during worship, what the thing that kept coming to me was encouragement. And I was thinking, well, okay, we're supposed to give encouraging words. But then I kind of looked around, and a lot of the people that are trained to give encouraging words aren't here today. So I was like trying to figure out, okay, what's this about? And a um, uh, gentleman that I'm going to invite up to share uh, something with you, uh, when I, after speaking with him, it, it gelled for me. You know, there's, you know, there's a lot of terms that we use. Um, sometimes we call them Christianese terms. You know, and if if you're fairly new to this kind of thing, or even if you're <laughs> been around a while, I mean, you know, some of the buzzwords just kind of get, huh? Um, but the Bible speaks of the body of Christ, and we are part of that body. But within that, we are our own body, okay? And you've, I know you've heard it said that what affects one of us affects all of us. And there are a, a lot of people, myself included, I just <laughs> am just now getting over a three-month battle with respiratory and stuff. And but there's others going through, or either going through or have gone through um, stuff. And so, if you're going through stuff, I'd like to like for you to stand. And it's your definition of stuff. It's not my definition of stuff. Don't be bashful. Um, I see someone in the back that's not standing that should be standing. That would be you. Thank you. Okay, now I would like to... Just briefly, just kind of look around. And there's some of you that should be standing, but I don't have time to call you all out. This affects us all. And there's those that, there are several that aren't here (laughs) that would be standing as well. And I want to know, want you to know, 
that God is on your side. And he never slumbers, he never sleeps. And so even while you're dreaming or daydreaming, he's doing something for you or with you. You just may not know yet what it is. Because a lot of times it takes some time. It takes other people getting in their place. And so, um, Mac, would you come up here, please? Sure, go, go ahead and sit if you want. This is Mac. This is his first Sunday with us. Um, he shared his uh, the word that he got with me, and uh, one of the one of the uh, sorry a big concept that's of the kingdom is that God confirms His word, and so um, out of the mouths of two or more witnesses, sometimes we witness to ourselves. But sometimes we have other folks come and witness to us. And, and so um, I believe that this word will encourage everyone, but especially those that are going through their stuff. I wouldn't normally do this, uh, but I discern this morning that this house, this body, is hungering after God. And you have an openness to receive what he has for you. The scripture says, hear the word and discern it. Apply it to yourself. If it's God, then walk in it. And if it isn't, then it's not for you. And so, I get visions, and I had a vision some time ago about Marianne up here dressed in green with her luggage thing. And so when I saw this, and then what God does with me is then he brings it back to my memory. And so that was the confirmation that I had a word for you this morning. And the word that God is quickening in my heart for this body is it has to do with the parable of the teaching of the sower. And specifically the third sower, where the seed was sown which is the word of God, was sown amongst the thistles. And the thistles sprang up, and they choked out the word. And so they said to Jesus, Jesus, what does this word mean? Explain the parable of the sowers to us. And so he explained the parable of the sowers. And then he came to the third sowing, the seed. And he said, the seed is the word of God, and it is sown amongst the thistles. And the thistles sprang up, and they choked out the word. And what it means to you is, is that the cares of the world, this is you specifically, the cares of the world have choked out the word of God that has been sown in you, and you have become ineffectual for the kingdom. And you see, all of the things that were said this morning about forgiveness are hurts, the things that the enemy has done to us and what have you, that has put us in bondage. The more that you 
walk in the fullness of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you on Calvary. There's no black spots on anybody's heart in here. You need to understand that. The enemy will accuse you of unforgiveness. He will accuse you of this or that or whatever. And that's only to keep you away for what Jesus Christ has done to set you free. But the more that you are concerned about the things of the world, the less you're able to appropriate the very thing that he did to set you free. So I would encourage you to appropriate that in your life. You see, you can't take it with you. And the more that the enemy can keep you in bondage, the less effectual that you will be for the kingdom of God and for your redemption. Would you repeat the first part again about the house being a secret? Yeah. This house I discerned is open to the things of God. Unfortunately, the enemy has gotten into our body. And the enemy has shut us down and closed up a lot of avenues of God's ministry to his people to bring revelation and rhema that we might be set free. And so, this body, when I discerned that it was open to the word of the Lord, and then when the vision was brought back to me about Mary Ann, it was confirmation uh, that this is the word that I was to speak. Like I said to David, this is not me. I'm just a drunk that Jesus found me bleeding and dying on the Jericho Road. And he stopped and he poured in the oil and the wine, the kind that restores your soul. And he raised me up and he washed me off. And he said to me, no, I'll go with you. You be my mouthpiece and I will speak to you. And so that's what I discerned all about this. That I was to give this word this morning. But I submit to authority. They called me. I did not interject myself into your service. But they called me. So you weigh the word. And walk in it if it is of God. And if it isn't, it's just another word that was given. Thanks, Mac. Thank you, Mac. Sorry we've kept you a little late. I um, hope it was worth it. You know, we we start, and we, we kind of almost have our own liturgy, <laughs> as it were. Um, you know, we start with an opening song, and then we welcome you, typically. And one of the things that we say 
virtually every time, at least once, not a couple of times before the teaching, is that it's our desire that you would meet God today. And I'd like to think that we've met God today. And I just, let me play, I want to pray a blessing over you. And then um, when I get to the amen part, if those of you that um, would like to pray for other people, if you would come and be available. And then those of you that would like to receive prayer, come on up. Y'all that were standing might be good candidates for that. (laughs) Lord, one of the um, uh, scripture that's running through me right now is uh, related to, I'm not going to get this verbatim, but uh, not becoming weary and well-doing. And I want to tell you something. If you weren't being effective, if you weren't warring in your own way on behalf of the kingdom of God, the enemy would not be fighting back. And that's what we're experiencing. And that's it's just the way it is. You know, that's part of why we have an intercessory prayer group that meets every week because, um, you know, we need intercession. We need to pray for ourselves and pray for each other as often as possible. And so I just, um, just want to encourage you to not become weary in well-doing because you are in the process. You are well-doing. Whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, you are well-doing, all of you, every single one of you. No matter how much or how little you know God, if you've been walking with him since you could walk at all, or if you couldn't spell God, if we spied you the G and the O, it doesn't matter. You're here today. You're in the presence of God. You're in the kingdom. You are in the kingdom of heaven. It's here. And you are in it right now. And so going forward, the choices are How much of this do I want to experience? And so I just pray, Lord, I ask that you have just blessed each one of these in their own process, wherever they are, and give them what they need for that next step, whatever that looks like. And Lord, I just reinforce the idea that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You took our guilt and our shame to the cross. Your word says in several places that you choose, that you will remember our sins no more. You're omniscient. You're all-powerful. You can't forget. 
But in your love for us and in your mercy, you choose not to remember. And that sets you apart from every other God. Every other God holds those things over us. You put them at the bottom of the sea. And so, Lord, what you have chosen not to remember, empower each one of us here today that we would not remember. That those things would not weigh us down any longer. That what you have forgiven is forgiven once and for all. And we forgive ourselves. In Jesus' name. Amen. And with that, we're dismissed. Serve the Lord.